0: Well, uh, good morning folks. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, if you'd like to uh, keep it open uh, at Exodus, uh, we'll be looking at uh, a good bit of 15 and some of, uh, some of 14 uh, as well. Uh, November uh, 1918 uh, will mark the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, uh, whenever the uh, <coughs> Allied powers triumphed over the The Germans. But six months earlier, it looked as if Germany uh, might seize victory as they launched the spring offensive. Uh, The great attack that they launched left the uh, Allies teetering on the brink of defeat. They were almost driven back uh, into the sea. Um, Fearing this, the head of the British Army, Field Marshal Haig, issued a famous order, and uh, he did so with this uh, great moustache he had. Uh, He issued a famous order in which he wrote, With our backs to the wall, and believing in the justice of our cause, each one of us must fight to the end. And gradually, the enemy advance stalled, and the Allies uh, turned the situation around, and as they say, the rest is history. Now, while Haig didn't invent the phrase, backs to the wall, uh, it probably originated from the game of chess, uh, his stirring message uh, popularized it. Uh, so, backs to the wall has become a phrase Uh, that we use a byword for being in a difficult situation uh, with no apparent means of escape. And all we are able to do is kind of dig in and make uh, a last uh, stand. So we are uh, continuing uh, this morning, as uh, Chris said, on our series Incomparable, uh, looking at uh, these various attributes of God. Uh, We're borrowing uh, from Jan Wilkins' book, uh, None uh, Like Him. Uh, And we're thinking, in particular, about eight ways uh, in which God uh, is different from us. Also, give another uh, plug to another book about God, uh, the Holiness of God, by R.C. Sproul. A wonderful book about God. When Sproul uh, died earlier this year, many people uh, said that this book was one of the most influential books uh, in their lives. And uh, that, uh, I say, it's only about 150 pages long. It's not as as big and heavy, I think, as it looks. Uh, It's very well uh, written, uh, very easy to to follow. I'm not saying uh, you're not a Christian if you haven't read this book, but uh, why take the chance? Uh, So uh, I recommend that that to you. Uh, So this morning in particular, uh, we're going to think uh, about God's omnipotence, uh, how he is the God, as Chris said, of infinite or unlimited power. As we do so, we're going to look here at Exodus 15 and Exodus 14 a bit as well, and this ultimate backs-to-the-wall story. Chapter 12 of Exodus, we read how God leads his people out of Egypt after 430 years uh, in captivity. He's now going to lead them uh, to the promised land, the land that he is giving to them. But at the beginning of chapter 14, something unusual happens. And that is at the beginning of chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, God gives Moses what on the face of it is a rather strange command. It's essentially the command uh, to turn around, to turn the people around, march them back towards Israel, and then have them camp with their backs against the sea. If you read on into verses 5 and 6 then, you see that around this time, Pharaoh and his officials are having a change of heart uh, about letting Israel go. So, uh, Pharaoh gathers up his army, and we read in verses 6 through to 9, he pursues uh, the Israelites. He catches them uh, at the camp of which God has led them to, and he has them with their backs to the sea. There is no escape. This is real backs to the wall territory. When the people arrive or witness the arrival of Pharaoh's grand army, what do they do? They panic. They panic. Uh, They're no military buffs, but they realize they're in a hopeless situation. So here's Pharaoh, who's worshipped as a god in his land in front of them. And he has his mighty army of chariots with them. Think RAF tornadoes, uh, for a kind of modern-day equivalent. And behind them is the sea. Now, at best, the Israelites were wary about the sea. At worst, they feared it was a place of chaos, quite possibly under the control of the pagan gods. So Pharaoh and his army in front of them, the devil behind them, is effectively how they're thinking about this. And there they are stuck in the middle, this huge motley crowd of men, women, and children. Go back a couple of verses further into chapter 13, they're not yet ready for battle. God fears that the first arrow they'll turn tail and run. So here they are, caught between the devil and the devil and the deep blue sea. So what do they do? Well, verses 10 through to 12, they turn on Moses. He has failed. He has brought them out of Egypt to die. And remember, they say, we begged you. We begged you not to take us out. We begged you. We told you we were having a lovely time in Egypt as slaves. It was a wonderful life, but you took us out anyway. But then in verses 15 through to 28, this seemingly impossible situation, some things begin to change. First of all, verses 15 through to 18, God commands Moses to divide the sea to allow the Israelites to pass through safely. Secondly, verses 19 and 20, the pillar of fire and cloud that had guided the Israelites in the journey now keeps them safe. All that night, the pillar uh, spreads light so the Israelites can see, but it keeps the Egyptians shrouded in darkness so they can't see. Thirdly, verses 21 to 22, we eventually see That the Israelites passed through the sea on dry land, completely safe. And fourthly, verses 23 through to 28, the Lord destroyed the Egyptian army. The Egyptians hurtled after the Israelites. They pursued them through the channel that opened up in the sea. It seemed to have opened up for them as well. But God sows chaos amongst them. He sends confusion upon them and closes the sea over them, and they're utterly destroyed. It is the most remarkable backs-to-the-wall story of them all. It's a story that's recounted in this song of celebration in chapter 15 that Chris read. But it's a story that will be recounted time and time and time again in the history of Israel. We see it, for example, in the Psalms, a couple of Psalms, Psalm 66, Psalm 106. They recount the story of deliverance through the sea. It becomes a picture of salvation that runs right through the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 speaks of this great deliverance that is here for our benefit and our instruction. It's a remarkable story, but it's a perplexing one as well. Go back to the beginning of chapter 14. Why? Why did God lead his people back towards Pharaoh and then place them in this terrifying situation where they thought they were stuck and they were in a completely impossible situation? Why? Why? Well, God tells Moses in, chapter, in verse 4, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So when these remarkable events are over, we read in chapter 14 and verse 31, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. God led His people in this way so that He might display His unlimited power and lead His people to trust Him. This whole incident is for us a display of God's unlimited power. This much becomes evident then when we look at chapter 15, this great song of victory. It's a song that is at number one for a very long time. Its chorus repeated, By Miriam in verse 21 becomes a classic, and people are still singing it 800 years later in Jeremiah and Haggai. (coughs) Indeed, in Revelation 15 and 3, we hear God's redeemed people sing the song of Moses. So this morning, I want uh, to to walk us through uh, this song, and then I want to offer three uh, applications or or three lessons uh, from this incident. So the song is in three sections. First of all, we see a song of uh, God's total victory. We see a song of God's total victory. So, throughout these opening verses, there are images of the totality of Pharaoh's defeat. Verse 1 horse and rider thrown into the sea. Verse 4 Pharaoh's army and chariots have been hurled down into the sea. Verse 4 the best of Pharaoh's officers have been drowned. Verse 5 the deep waters have completely covered them. And they've sank like a stone never to rise again. They are images of total victory, accomplished by the Lord. Five times in five verses, God is described as the Lord. Those little capital, that little capital spelling of Lord, L-O-R-D. The covenant-keeping God of Israel. God has kept his covenant with his people. He's also addressed as highly exalted. Their strength and their song, their salvation, their personal God, their father's God, the divine warrior. God is to be exalted because he has accomplished total victory over Pharaoh. This is a supposed God. This is the head of the regional superpower. This is the man with the most high-tech army of its day. And God simply washes it away. You could imagine one of those great military parades that we see uh, in Red Square in Moscow from time to time. Row upon row upon row of the army with all their hardware in tow. Simply being swept away by a flood. You get a picture of what's going on here. God's total victory. Secondly, it's a song of God's unlimited power. Verses 6 to 10. Here Moses recounts in his song how the enemy were overthrown, how God brought down his wrath against the enemy by piling up the waters of the sea and bringing them crashing down upon them. God silenced the boasts of the enemy. One of the striking things about this section of the song is Moses' repetition of the words you and you. Repeatedly he addresses God in this way, drawing attention to what God has done. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Verse 6, again, your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 7, greatness, your majesty, you threw them down, those opposed to you. Verse 7, you unleashed your burning anger. Verse 8, by the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up. Verse 10, you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. Contrast that with verses 9 and 10, where Pharaoh boasted of what he would do. Pharaoh boasted... But God did it. God did it. Of course, the other great theme here is God's absolute power over the sea. We see this in verse 8. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And again in verse 10. But you blew your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Here's the sea, which in the minds of ancient pagans was the realm of the gods. It's completely under God's control. So much so that he actually uses it to defeat his enemies. This brings us to the great climax of verses 11 and 12. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Who can compare to the Lord? Quite simply, the gods created by Humankind, the gods created as a result of human imagination, they are nothing. Nothing compared to the true and the living God. Verse 11, there is no God like the Lord. Amongst the gods of the nations, there is no God like the covenant-keeping God who has delivered his people from Pharaoh. He alone is majestic in holiness. He alone is God. He alone is separate from the creation. He alone is awesome in glory. All his actions are good. All his actions are worthy of himself. He alone works wonders. He is the only God who can perform miraculous acts. This is evident in verse 12 from the sea, which he simply uses to swallow up his enemies. Quite simply put, God is incomparable in his power. His power over the universe has no limits. It has no limits. Third part then of the song is a song of unfailing salvation in verses 13 to 18. Verse 13, Moses' song rises to a crescendo as he sings, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Here is the song's West Life moment. This is where the key changes. Moses gets up off his stool and he brings it home to the big finale. That the great God, whose name he has been magnifying, loves his people with an unfailing love. And he has the power to bring them into the inheritance that he has prepared for them. His unfailing love is matched by his unfailing power. For Moses, God's past deliverance and his unfailing love for his people are those signs that God will overcome all opposition that the Israelites will face. He will bring his people home. Verses 14 through to 16, Moses speaks of how the nations they face will now fear them. Because they will have heard of how God and his power delivered them through the Red Sea. They will collapse before the Israelites like a house of cards. Indeed, The Hebrew tense of this passage can be read to suggest that this is a foregone Conclusion. At the end of verse 16 makes clear, God's people will simply pass through the nations, overcoming them while they will be as helpless as statues. Having so led his people that they will overcome all his enemies, God in verses 17 and 18 will bring his people to the place that he has chosen. This will also be his dwelling place. It will be the place where he will reign with his people forevermore. It's a wonderful song about God's incomparable power. Well, what does it mean for us? Well, let me pick out three ideas in particular. The first is that this shows us God's unlimited power. Or sorry, God's unlimited power shows us that he is the living God. God's unlimited power shows us that he is the living God. The first thing to say about this incident is that it is history. That I don't simply mean that it happened in the past, but that it actually happened. It actually happened. Sometime about three and a half thousand years ago, these events actually took place. Israel stood trapped between Pharaoh's army and between the sea, and God opened up the sea so that his people could pass through on dry land. Now, it's vitally important that we grasp this. It's vitally important that we grasp this because it takes us right to the heart of the Christian faith. That right at the heart of the Christian faith lies the message of the living and the true God. Well, how do we know that we worship the living and the true God? In a world that has so many gods on offer, how do we know that we worship the living and the true God? We know because he is the God who acts in history. He is the God who actually intervenes in our world. In Isaiah 63, we find another passage where the prophet recounts the story of how God delivered his people through the Red Sea. And this leads him in Isaiah 64 and verse 4 to declare, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Here is the unique point of the Christian faith. That the God of the Bible is the only God who actually intervenes in our world. Other religions may talk about God. They may offer teaching. They may offer apparent wisdom. They may speculate about God. But the living God of the Bible is the only God who has ever been seen acting, intervening on behalf of God. Of his people. Read through the Bible and you see this time and time again. There is account after account of how God intervenes in the world on behalf of his people. We see it here in Exodus. We see it a little later on as the Israelites cross the Jordan into the promised land. We see it as Jericho falls. We see it as God raises up judges and kings to save his people. We see it in the miracles of Elijah. And of course we see it supremely in the person of God's Son. Who comes from heaven to earth to save his people from their sins. How do we know that God exists? How do we know we worship the true and the living God? Because he is the only God who time after time after time has intervened in our world on behalf of his people. This in part is why God gave us the second commandment. You shall make for yourself no graven image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down or, or worship them. God forbids us making idols. For what can an idol or an image tell us about the living God? Nothing. Nothing. And tell us nothing about the God who is incomparable in his power. Repeatedly in the Bible, in the Old Testament prophets, you have these scathing portraits of idols. Like the one we read last week in Isaiah 40. Where God laughs at idols carved from wood. And carried about in carts and propped up so that they don't fall over. God laughs. He says these gods can't even help themselves. Let alone help you. But that is not so with the living and the true God. He has the power to act. He has the power to create the world, to command the flood, to stop the Red Sea, to part the Jordan, to command the sun to stand still, to raise the dead, and so on and so on and so on. The God of the Bible is the true and living God who has the power to act. Psalm 66, as I've mentioned, is another psalm which recounts the parting of the Red Sea. One point there, the psalmist says, Come and see what God has done. How awesome his deeds for mankind! He turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the waters on foot. Whenever we are tempted to doubt God, whenever we are tempted to doubt that he is able to do what he has promised, We need to say to ourselves, come and see. Come and see what God has done. We need to go back to the Bible and remind ourselves of God's great and mighty acts. Acts so great, acts so powerful, that they can only be performed by the true and the living God. Secondly, God's unlimited power shows that he can do what he pleases. What is so remarkable about this story? Well, most backs-to-the-wall stories are stories of human heroism. If you uh, like kind of adventure movies, uh, and films like the, the, the Alamo or Zulu or, or, or 300, here we have stories of human heroism. However, this story, in this story, the people are completely passive. Completely passive. God does everything. Well, how does he do it? Well, he does it by bending the created order to his own will. He does whatever pleases him. And again, this is seen time and time again in the accounts of the Bible that God does what everyone else knows is impossible. God bends the created order to his will. Let me give you one uh, example And so uh, it's July, uh, and we're in a heat wave. uh, So let's think about Christmas. (laughs) It is, uh, just to warn you, it is only 169 shopping days to Christmas. So uh, go to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 An angel announces to Mary, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. Now, so we don't miss the point, we're told twice in the run up to this announcement that Mary is a virgin. This is further emphasized when Mary replies, How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary may be a young girl from the country, but she knows how babies are made. This is impossible. The angel replies, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In short, God will do it. God will do it. God will do the impossible because he will simply bend creation to his will. And we see this repeatedly in the pages of Scripture. God is not limited as we are limited by our creatureliness. We are creatures. He is the creator. He does whatever pleases him. Lewis Carl, Sue, The Looking Glass, there's a famous exchange between Alice and the White Queen, where the White Queen tries to persuade Alice that she's in fact 101 years old. Alice says, There's no use trying one... One can't believe impossible things. The queen says, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. It seems a bit nonsensical, but Lewis, uh, Lewis Carl's actually making a, a theological point, tackling some people who were unbelievers in his day. That is that we need to be like the Queen. We shouldn't rule out the miraculous. We shouldn't rule things out as being impossible. Rather, we should open our minds to what God, who created the universe, can do with his creation. With God, nothing is impossible. This is his world, and he does whatever pleases him. He bends this world to suit his purposes. So whenever we're challenged by people who say, surely you don't believe that, it's impossible. We need to say, you're right, it is impossible. It is impossible for us with all our creaturely limitations. But it's not impossible for the God who created the world, whose power has no limits, and who does whatever pleases Him. Thirdly, hopefully, Done something wrong there. Maybe throw that one up for me, Jonathan, please. Thirdly, God's unlimited power shows that we can trust Him completely. This is the purpose behind God leading His people into this trap and then parting the Red Sea to deliver them. He shows the Israelites that they can trust Him completely. Whatever He says, He will do, whatever He promises, He will fulfill. There is nothing that can resist his power. Not even the most powerful rulers of this world, not all the spiritual forces ranged against him. Not even the laws of nature can defy God. And this is exactly the effect the parting of the Red Sea has upon Israel. As Moses declares in verse 13, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. God will do what he has promised, and he has the power to do so. He has the power to do so. Miracles such as this one recorded in the Bible are there to reassure us that God's power is unlimited, that God will do what he has promised, and that we can trust him completely to do so. God will do all that he has promised to do. He will build his church. And even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He will carry on to completion the good work that he has begun in you. He will never allow us to be separated from his love. He will take us to the place that he has prepared for us. God will will do all that he has promised to do, and he has the power to do so. We will often, like the Israelites, find ourselves in backs-to-the-wall situations in life. We will be in situations where we feel our weakness, we feel our vulnerability, we feel our limitations, we we feel our creatureliness. We will find ourselves in situations where we wonder, if God is truly with us, why am I in a mess like this? Why does my life look like a car crash at the minute? In situations like this, we'll be tempted to cry out against God. The reality is that we find ourselves in situations like this, not because God has failed us, not because God doesn't know, Rather, like the Israelites, we find ourselves in these situations because God has led us there. He has led us there to remind us of our weaknesses. He has led us there to remind us of our limitations and to display to us His unlimited power. Sometimes that power will be displayed in remarkable deliverance from situations where we are hard-pressed. I heard a while back, someone was telling me about some Eritreans in prison for being Christians. They were being held in those detention centers that they have in Eritrea for Christians, in the desert region, but they managed to escape. It was dark, and it wasn't long before the guards were in pursuit. So there they were in this unfamiliar scrubland, in their bare feet, being chased by the guards. Then something unusual happened. It hadn't rained in that region for months and months on end. And suddenly there was a thunderstorm. And as they ran, the lightning flashes lit their path. And as they followed the lightning, they were guided to safety. A remarkable deliverance. Often, however, God's power is not displayed in remarkable acts of deliverance. More often, it's displayed in sustaining grace. God displays his power by keeping us faithful in times of distress and difficulty. For every story there is of persecuted Christians undergoing remarkable deliverances, there are hundreds more, thousands more, of persecuted Christians staying faithful to God even to the point of death, of refusing to deny Christ when to do so would grant them release. In this way, too, God displays his saving power. He displays his power by enabling his people to persevere in the face of adversity, by sustaining our faith and our hope in him when every outward hope is crushed and we are pushed beyond our limits. God says, I have the power to keep you strong. It is by my power that you are called. It is by my power that you are saved. It is by my power that you will be kept strong to the end. Even when we face the ultimate backs-to-the-wall situation of death itself, God calls upon us to trust him, that death will not have the final say in our lives. Instead, just as God once parted the Red Sea and delivered his people, just as God once raised his son Jesus from the dead, so one day he will raise our dead and decaying bodies into the fullness of eternal life. This is what he has promised to those who have put their faith in Jesus. And this is what he is able to do because he is the living God. The God whose power is without limits. This is our confidence. However things may appear, when faith is tested, when we cannot fathom the ways of God, even when faced with death itself, we have the confidence that God will not fail in any of his promises to us. Because God has unlimited power accomplish all all that he has promised to us may God bless his word to our hearts this morning let's pray